Welcome to the DTB podcast for July 2022, volume 60, number seven. My name's David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, uh, editor-in-chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we're going to talk about the content of July's DTB. Uh, but before we dive into July's articles, I want to highlight a response we received to the serotonin syndrome article that we published in June. Uh, letter was submitted online and was titled uh, Yet Another Review, uh, and this is what it said. Uh, there have been a great number of reviews of serotonin toxicity in the last 10 years, during which there have been no significant changes in our knowledge of the subject. Publishing yet another review is unnecessary, multiple publication yet again. It will do nothing except swell the coffers of the medical publishing company, but provides no value to subscribers. James, what's your take on this? Is this a fair comment and criticism? Well, I think, first of all, there have been quite a lot of Twitter um, responses to our article saying how useful it was, particularly uh, from clinical pharmacists. So I, I don't think you can ever say too much about something, particularly when it's still being missed. And it got my own experience of a patient who was seen in casualty and was told that she was having a panic attack and yet clearly had serotonin syndrome. Mildly, but that was definitely the issue. She was on a SSRI and pregabalin and was given some tramadol for pain and developed what I'm sure is serotonin syndrome. So, you know, it, it's easy for specialists and people who are experts at things to say we've had enough of this. But actually, I don't think as a generalist, there's always a good reason to talk about it, particularly when you feel clinically it's still being missed. So I, I understand, you know, if, if that's something that's been your your thing. But actually, we've got a lot of new clinicians coming into general practice, a lot of new clinicians working in primary care, and it's worth repeating. I mean, I agree that if there's nothing new to say about a subject, it certainly may not be worth saying. But as you say, there are always people who may never have come across uh, an article on serotonin syndrome. And for them, it will be uh, will be new information. So I, mean, I, think, I think I agree with you that, that, I mean, it's great to have feedback and, and appreciate the comment. But to be fair, in this case, and I think this is the first article we've ever published on on the subject, so maybe maybe we could be excused just this one. <laughs> yes, it's a bit odd, isn't it? Because uh, um, we've been going on for a little while now, and certainly there are a lot of subjects we've repeated several times for for very good reason. So as you say, I think it's um, I think it's important that we look at what we are trying to achieve, which is better understanding of the therapeutics um, and I think serotonin syndrome and the whole issue of adverse drug reactions is a really important area. But just to say we are always pleased to receive comments on our content and positive or negative um, we can always learn from from both. Uh, there is facility on our website to submit comments online to any article. Um, if you go to the article the fifth tab down on the left hand side of the article page takes you to the rapid responses submission form and then it's just a matter of filling in the details and sending us your comments so you know we we, we welcome all comments for sure yeah okay let's get on to july's issue um begin with the editorial what's this one about so this is about the new vaginal estrogen that is going um to be available from pharmacists as a p medicine so it's uh 10 micrograms of estradiol so it's actually I think most people will be aware of Vagifem as the prescription-only medicine uh, equivalent. So this is a, a, a pharmacy-only version called Gina. 
um, and it will be available uh, once the MHRA have finished their consultation, um, be available as something that uh, women can pick up from pharmacies. I mean, this proposal got some parts of the media very excited and suggesting that all forms of HRT would be available without prescription. But clearly this isn't the case. Yeah, I mean, this is where it's so important, isn't it? Uh, you're absolutely right. The headlines from the papers was HRT to be available over the counter. And there was sort of this definite feeling that, you know, the whole issue of all the problems about having to see a GP about it were all sorted out because you could just pop along to your pharmacist and get it. And I think it's really important. And this is where I think it's particularly an issue is that, you know, this is for vulvoginal atrophy because of the menopause. And that only actually affects around... 4% of women in the sort of early menopause. It's much higher, 50% of women in the late menopause. But for younger women, in particular at the moment, who are looking at HRT as an option, this is, a, you know, probably isn't actually what they're going to be looking for primarily. So I think there does need to be real care about clarifying the wording of the promotional and educational and training materials so that people are absolutely aware of what they're getting. It would be a real travesty if someone used this, imagining that they were going to have other benefits perhaps and obviously um, unaware of, of actually what this does for them. So I think there's a lot of work to be done on that. I think it's, it's positive though. I think um, we all recognise that uh, vaginal estrogen is a pretty safe preparation to use. Um, but we just, as always, need to get the education and the promotional material correct. And it is important that people understand that that proposed indication is for the treatment of vaginal atrophy due to oestrogen deficiency in postmenopausal women aged 50 years and above um, and who've had not had um, a period for at least one year. So it's very specific. And you're right, it's going to be a, a key job to get that information out there so that the, the right people can access this product um, and we don't get the wrong people asking for it. I agree. And I think that this is something clinical ph well, pharmacists in general, dispensing pharmacists, their job is becoming ever increasingly complex. And increasingly, I think, or I worry that, you know, they're very busy. Um, very often their consulting rooms can be quite small and the availability of chaperones might be difficult. And the more complex the P medicines are, the more I think that we're expecting pharmacist to take on quite a complex area so um, I think it's the right thing I just think what worries me slightly is there needs to be you know along the lines of developing this making sure we have you know pharmacists have the facilities to be able to offer this in a private and uh, safe way and as part of that consultation you know it's important that pharmacists are able to describe the absolute risks and absolute benefits of the product so that someone can decide whether to buy it. I mean, shared decision-making doesn't stop with prescription medicines, does it? It, it carries on with um, P medicines, anything that you get from a pharmacy, you should be able to have a shared consultation on the benefits and risks. And that is where the education side will come in. Precisely. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose the possible benefit of this is that obviously there's less restriction on the advertising of P medicines. So there is an ability, if you like, to get the message out to people before they even walk into a pharmacy. So there is that advantage compared to a, a prescription only medicine, which obviously have very strict rules around advertising. So there is that issue. So hopefully there'll be an ability to make indications and, and what it's all about much more clear to women even before they consider 
you know, going to the pharmacist. Last year, we responded to the consultation on the reclassification of progestogen-only contraception, um, which we broadly supported. But we did have concerns that cost might be problematic for people from deprived or marginalised communities. Um, you know, the pill is always provided free of charge here. It was going to be something people had to buy. I mean, do you have similar concerns with this product? Yes, it's such a difficult area, this, isn't it? Because I think we all know that access is quite complex. It's not just about funding. It can also be geographical. You know, how close are you to being able to get to your pharmacy or get to your general practice? And, and often the pharmacy is actually more accessible than your general practice. So you've got this sort of question where access for one may be one type of access issue and access in another area with your pharmacist is going to be a different issue. So I think one hopes that, you know, the, the mosaic may all add up to being better access. But I think there is an issue with um, cost, which we must never forget. We know from looking at the issue of prescription costs, you know, across the board between Wales and England, that there is an issue with this, which you know, is not being addressed and which we constantly think about at DTB. So for people who don't pay prescription charges and would normally therefore get them free of charge, this may not be a huge benefit. Exactly. And as you say, because actually this is usually an issue that happens late in the menopause um, as a whole. So we're going to be probably talking about women in their 60s anyway, who will be perhaps most needing a vaginal estrogen. And of course, they get free prescriptions anyway. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, let's move on to a DTB select item, um, change of tack completely. Um, this was one that investigated funding of UK all-party parliamentary groups. Do you want to give a brief overview and, and perhaps start by saying what is an APPG? Yeah, do you know, this was a really interesting article um, because there was so much about this that I had absolutely no idea about. So we've got these all party parliamentary groups, which are sort of just ad hoc groups of members of parliament. And they just, you know, if they've got a common interest, they meet and they may have a certain goal in improving, you know, whatever it might be, whether it's around health or whether it's around other areas such as um, the environment. And what's remarkable is there are almost 900 of these groups and I was looking through and there are some members of parliament who belong to hundreds of them um, and it's just it's, it's a whole new sort of parallel universe really and, and what this paper did is it's a cross-sectional study that looked at the pharmaceutical industry's engagement with these groups and just looked at the funding that was being poured into them basically and sort of numbers of or amounts of money that was going into them? Was it significant? Yes, this is where it gets quite complicated. So what they found was that between 2012 and 2018, about one £1.2 million worth of pharmaceutical fundings was targeted at 16 health-related all-party parliamentary groups from about 35 companies. So, for example, the APPG for cancer got about £400,000. The APPG for health got about the same amount. And the APPG for thrombosis got about 150000 They were sort of the top three um, groups that got the highest payments from pharmaceutical companies. And does it matter? Do these groups do things that make a difference? This is where I've tried to sort of work out, you know, are these lobbying groups? And I think they probably are. 
I mean, I, you know, I'm no expert at this and I, you know, but I think what was fascinating too, was I looked at the APPG for health, for example. So this is the obviously very interested in health and the NHS. And I look back over the history and in 2015, all they received was £1,500 uh, from the King's Fund and it's marked as for reception. So clearly they had a reception and the King's Fund funded it. So that's 2015. You go on and last year they had over £100,000 used. And what was interesting, they were using a company called Policy Connect L Limited, um, which is a not-for-profit not company, but, but basically runs the secretariat for this um, APPG for health. And you've got dozens of companies now putting money into Policy Connect Limited to pay for that secretariat. You've got pharmaceutical companies, Coloplast, Johnson & Johnson, Gilead, What's fascinating, you've got three universities. In fact, the, the biggest supplies of money to the health APPG was Manchester Metropolitan, University of Derby and Bournemouth University. And I was thinking, well, why does a university fund uh, an APPG? And I don't know what the answer to that is. And I've actually emailed Bournemouth and asked them. I've not had a reply yet. But I mean, I just, I just was left thinking, What's all this about? What is going on here? Why are these companies thinking that it's useful to, to support the secretariat of the health APPG? And what struck me was that, that some of the outputs from these APPGs, I mean, they're quite hard to find, but they did get involved with some meaty areas such as pricing of drugs um, and reports on access to cancer drugs. So clearly there, there is a, an interest, isn't there, for, for pharma to get involved? Oh, there must be. There must be here. And I think, as you say, um, when this paper looked at some outputs, um, there were sort of 19 reports that came out from the top five um, APBGs that were receiving pharmaceutical funding. There were three essay collections. There were some consultations. Some of the industry contributions included raising issues around access for cancer drugs, about the tiered drug pricing. And there was something about drug spending caps. So, you know, this is about influencing politicians. It has to be. Otherwise, I don't understand what they're there for. So uh, fascinating, an area that has sort of gone completely under the woodwork. And, um, you know, an area that perhaps I'm because I'm, I'm a bit like that, I'm going to probably just sort of dig around a little bit and see if I can work out more about what's going on here, because I think it is significant that this is going on. OK, well, you you poke your stick in the ant's nest and see what see see what happens. I mean, what, <laughs> I, mean I suppose what struck me was that it's very easy to get confused, isn't it? We have health select committees who or we have you know, government select committees that actually are important and look at stuff and make decisions. We have APPGs, which feel like interest groups that are unaligned and unofficial, but presumably you've got MPs sitting on both. Um, so there is a cross-influence, isn't there? Precisely. I looked at the health informatics one, and they're talking about um, health informatics. And, you know, the people who are chairing it are people who've got a particular interest and I don't think there's any sort of concept of conflict of interest or the idea that actually there may be an, an important need to have an equitable or or sort of non-biased approach to things and I think you know as a clinician who spends his life worrying about the bias of uh, research into drugs I think the bias of of the ear 
that um, all the, the the quiet voice in an ear, I think, is a really important one. And I, I do I do have concerns that this is a a huge lobbying system which is sort of quietly going on under the radar. So well done to the authors of this paper for analysing the the information and actually putting it together, because um, it just gives us another area to look at. So, yes, uh, and, and I think if anyone's listening who actually does understand what's going on, and if I've been completely wrong, you know, please, as, as you said earlier, you know, drop us a line because I'd be fascinated to have a better understanding of what's going on. Okay, thank you very much. Um, let's go to our main article uh, review of Inclizaran. What do you want to say about this one? Fascinating. Inclizaran, this is a new drug that lowers LDL cholesterol. It works by being a small strand of RNA that interferes with um, an enzyme production called PCSK9. And uh, by doing that, it reduces LDL circulation by increasing LDL uptake into cells. So that's what it does. Um, I think What's fascinating for me about this drug, this is the one that has been pushed through MHRA and NICE guidance by one of these new accelerated programs that are all the sort of talk of the town. And um, it's one of the first drugs that's been pushed down to area prescribing committees with a, you must pass this, you must make it a green drug. So lots of interest in it. It's that has in itself has created a lot of noise. And what we do in this paper, which is really helpful, is we look at the evidence. You know, what does Inclizaran do? What have the studies shown, you know, about it? How effective is it? And and therefore, where does it sit in our armamentarium? So quick bottom line, uh, what outcomes did they study? So there are three randomised control trials that look at um, Inclizaran uh, called Orion 9, 10 and 11. You may ask, where's 1 to 9? And uh, there is a Orion 4 study that is actually ongoing at the moment. But three randomised control trials, two of them, in, um, two studies published in NEDGEM. And these were placebo-controlled trials that looked at uh, people with perhaps certain risk factors for atherosclerosis. So it might be the familial hypercholesterolemia, for example, was what Orion 9 looked at. Orion 10 and 11 looked at people with atherosclerosis proven or those that would be at risk of atherosclerosis, such as diabetics. And what this drug does, it's an injection that's given every six months after a loading dose of a dose three months apart. What it does is it very effectively lowers LDL cholesterol by about 40 to 50 percent at 18 months. So no doubt from the studies, that's what it does. What we haven't got is any outcome data on what the benefit of that is. Um, and what I think worried me slightly was that there was no difference in death rates from any cause, whether it's cardiovascular deaths or pre-specified cardiovascular events even, between the placebo group and the treatment group within those 18 months. And I'm pretty sure I've read somewhere looking at statin benefits that you start to see benefits of statin treatment well before 18 months. So I think that's the question mark over this. We've had other drugs in the past that have lowered LDL cholesterol and haven't been shown to be beneficial. And the question is, where does Inclizaran fit? Is it going to be a statin or is it going to be one of these drugs that's failed? And just to be fair, I suppose, to, to the drug that the studies 
were adding inclisiran to, in some cases, maximum tolerated dose of statins. So people were already taking statins and then this was on top of it. So it produced this significant increase or decrease in LDLC. But is it, you know, is it hard to expect that at this stage with, with relatively short-term studies that you will see a difference in, in, in mortality? I mean, partly the trials, weren't, the trials weren't set up for it anyway, were they? No, that's an interesting thought. And of course, the CTT collaboration, the cholesterol treatment trialists collaboration, they're the ones using statins that have shown this every one millimole per litre, you drop the LDL in someone, you reduce their cardiovascular events risk by 20 or 21%. So that's sort of almost, you know, that's almost cut into stone. And I'm not aware that they found a J shape to that curve. My understanding was that's linear. So you would have thought that if you're dropping LDL cholesterols by 50%, that you should have seen some benefit at, at 18 months. But as you say, it was. But these studies weren't set up to show that. Um, and that's where Orion 4 comes in. That's a study that's ongoing. It was set up in 2018. I think it's 15,000. They're trying to get hold of 15,000 people who've got uh, ischemic heart disease, and they're going to be randomized to placebo or inclisiran followed up for five years and, and and that's the study which will tell us if this drug is is effective or not so we've got some data showing a, a fairly significant drop in in ldlc let's let's be, let's be fair that it, it it does suck ldlc out of you um and you actually, actually get down to some really low levels but we've got no outcome data as yet, the, the mantra of this linear relationship between LDLC lowering is largely based on statin data, isn't it? So, absolutely, yeah. Could be something else that statins do that 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 that, that improve their outcomes that, that we don't know if this drug does. So, given all that, why why all the emphasis on its use? Why is it being pushed through into primary care? against perhaps standard clinical advice, which is, you know, we, we, we don't normally rush to hand clinical responsibility into primary care until we're a bit more confident with the drugs. So, so what was going on with this one? Exactly. Um, and I think it is part of this new role for the MHRA and the, and the nice technical appraisals and the whole of this new life sciences strategic direction. The, I think there's a real push to look at drugs that can be moved into therapy early and that will allow or attract pharmaceutical companies to make the UK their base for this sort of thing. And obviously, you know, one of the things that NICE will be looking at having um, passed this drug for use in the NHS is looking at, as they call, real world data to see um, how things are going. And according to their data, they're suggesting that between 40 and 120 patients per average practice will be using this drug um, over the next few years. Um, Whether um, GPs will do that, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to work out what I would say to my patients if um, we have a discussion about this drug, because it's difficult to push a drug that you can't demonstrate yet has got a beneficial outcome for people. And there may well be other things you can do to help that patient before going to this drug that, you know, I mean, one hopes that, that, that you know, adherence and all the other aspects of lifestyle have been addressed. 
but but there are still things that could could perhaps be be done. But just it just you know the other other problem I had with this is that the secrecy over the costings of it um, and the lack of openness of of the cost effectiveness data, which which we couldn't get to. Exactly, it'd be better for me to suggest a patient takes part in a Ryan Four trial than perhaps take the drug because we need to find out what the answer is to this. It could be it could be fantastic. It could, you know, as the website of Nice was suggesting, save three hundred thousand lives in the UK. You know, this this could be a really important therapeutic. It could be as important as statins were. Remember back the old Four S study just transformed our lives. But it could also be another cerevastatin or torsetrapid or, you know, we have other drugs that have been tried and failed. And, you know, I, I just think, you know, as and this is the mantra that goes right back to Andrew Herxheimer. You know, the one thing you don't know about a drug when it's first marketed is what the long term effects are going to be. And in this one, we don't even know whether it's effective at all. So lots to think about. I say we have to wait until Orion 4 publishes, but in the meantime, the NHS is going to be using it. So it'll be very interesting to see what transpires. But um, okay, thank you for that. I'm sure we'll re- revisit Inclizoran several times. Um, so finally, and this kind of brings us back full circle to the idea that sometimes you need to repeat um, topics to get the message over. We have a case report um, and it covers something we talked about in the April issue. What was that and what's the problem? Yeah, so this is a, uh, a case report of a lady in her 80s who uh, developed um, acute lung toxicity due to nitrofurantoin. Um, we, we looked, I think it was a BJGP open article, wasn't it, from 2021 that we um, looked at in April. And that was where we pointed out that I think about a third of people were unaware of lung toxicity and half of clinicians didn't test lung function. And this is a a case report from Texas. And what I found fascinating about this, this is a woman who was admitted with pyonephritis, um, was started on nitrofurantoin and was readmitted four days later. And what I found fascinating was the CT scan done when she was first admitted with pyonephritis showed absolutely nothing going on in the lung basis and four days later when she was admitted with shortness of breath she had evidence of um, bilateral pleural effusions and pronounced primary interstitial prominence in other words you know it looked like she had got uh, fibrosis so I think it's fascinating just four days of nitrofurantoin and bang you've got this presentation um, and I just think it's worth reminding that, that this is a real issue. It affects perhaps as much as 1% of um, patients. I've had a patient myself with a very similar presentation. Um, and, you know, if someone presents with lung symptoms, it's, you know, it's another thing, look at the drugs they're on. And if they're on nitrofurantoin, the first thing to do is to ask yourself, could this be the cause? And one of the, the issues we picked up in the previous item from that study that looked at awareness of adverse effects was that people don't do baseline lung and liver function tests now okay you, you can never predict this was this was within four days it wasn't a long-term effect i guess had people done or thought about lung and liver function tests then it might trigger an alert think actually if somebody comes back with a, a changing respiratory pattern it may be maybe down to the drug i get all sorts of difficult questions this, this was acute use as opposed to long-term use but even so, there's some, there's some important reminders, aren't there, about, about the safety of this drug? 
I've certainly in my clinical practice over 30 years seen a huge change in the instance of lung fibrosis. And I'm beginning to wonder, you know, whether we've missed a trick here. You know, perhaps there's more of a drug involvement in this than than we've realised. So um, it's certainly, I think, a hot topic for me at the moment. And I think it's one that clinicians need to be. We need to get that third unaware, you know, down to, to single figures if we can, because, you know, this is a major issue for some people and it's something which we can prevent very easily. So no apologies for repeating the message that, you know, nitrofurotone does have a sting in its tail. And it's, it's just worth being aware of that. Exactly. Okay, thank you very much. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. Uh, this year, we're celebrating 60 years of DTB. Uh, there's a webpage dedicated to that anniversary and a timeline of some uh, golden oldie or, or diamond oldie articles um, that you can access free of charge. And as ever, if you want to get involved with DTB, please let us know. Email us at dtb at bmj.com. So many thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for August podcast. Music.